Hello and welcome to The Connected Generation. My name is Nikia Anani and I'm your host. This week I was joined by Mike Boyd who is an Australian entrepreneur, a CEO, a serial investor. He's a co-owner of The Vroom Group, founder of ProSurer Insurance, an investor at Mudrick Capital, host of a podcast also, The Business of Family, which is phenomenal, and a very active YPO member. And we really had a fascinating conversation about his entrepreneurial journey and how that journey was not just one of triumph, but also had trials and the entrepreneurial failures he went through very early in his journey, in his early 20s. And how through serendipity, two days after the collapse of one business, led him to an opportunity to acquire another business and over the last decade how he scaled that business globally and how it's now the largest car rental aggregator in the southern hemisphere it was just a powerful super inspirational conversation where we kind of peeled back the onions and drew back the curtain and saw the backstory which I so I was so blessed by that conversation and we had a full-on conversation also about his journey on the podcast and his learnings from we had a really rich conversation also from his journey in trying to navigate how do you build multi-generational business multi-generational wealth and through studying other families and interviewing other families on his podcast and the themes and threads and um, similarities that he's found across these families and really thoroughly enjoyed this conversation it was one of my top five for sure (laughs) so definitely tune in and enjoy thank you hi mike welcome to the connected generation it's amazing to have you today Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, it's great to reconnect with you. I'm glad we get this opportunity. Yes, it's, it really is great. Um, so, Mike, today you're an entrepreneur, you're a CEO, an investor. But before we kind of speak to that, can you tell us more about your journey? How did you get to where you are today? Yeah, it's a great question and and one that I could probably answer for days, but I'll I'll try and give you the um, the short version. I grew up an entrepreneur, you know, I was a, an entrepreneur for as long as I could remember and before I really knew what that word was. But, you know, I was the kid that was not exactly doing lemonade stands, but my version of that when I was 11 years old was rescuing um, lost golf balls out of the creek and dams in the local golf course and uh, polishing them up and selling these golf balls back to people for you know, $1 or 50 cents at the time. And starting my very early enterprising career, starting little businesses like that throughout high school and university, and of course, failing countless times, but ultimately getting a really nice combination of street smarts and book smarts at the same time. And Mm. so, um, you know, while I was just finishing high school and starting university, I started a party hire company because ultimately, you know, growing up in Australia, uh, turning 18, you're, you get the, the right to drink and it was a, gr- a big deal. I wanted to throw a great party so that all of my friends would feel the pressure to also throw a great party that year. And uh, <laughs> we'd always seen the American movies growing up of having a keg party, you know, a beer keg in the backyard. And I thought that sounded mm. like a terrific idea. So I tried to do that. And, um, you know, long story short, I couldn't find uh, someone that would offer that service to us in Australia. I couldn't find anywhere to rent the equipment and ultimately buy a keg 
And um, it just wasn't really something that, you know, the local pubs and things were doing anymore. And, and long story short, the birthday came and went. I didn't end up getting a, a keg, but um, it really gnawed at me that that opportunity was missed. And I can't have been the only person that was craving that as a, as a young 17, 18 year old. And so ultimately did some research and, and thought I found an opportunity and ordered some equipment from the US with, with the backing of a $4,000 loan and you know made a go of it and ultimately ran this business for three years and had a lot of fun at university um in the beer business as you can imagine so you know the 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 entrepreneurial journey has been wide and varied but it's certainly been a lot of fun along the way well that's incredible i love the fact that you you highlighted that you've been doing this for some time and there was failing along the journey can you speak more to that of course i mean so so many failures um you know, it, I remember when I was in my mid-teens, I had a passion for um, aquariums, of all things. I loved keeping fish as a pet and ultimately got a job at a local pet shop as a part-time thing after school. And um, it was very, very knowledgeable because it was a passion for me as a hobby and ultimately had some customers coming to the store that um, were only coming to see me to ask their specific questions about their their fish tanks. Um, and so I spotted the opportunity, quit my job and decided to be a, uh, a mobile aquarium servicing person <laughs> overnight, thinking that that was a great idea. But very quickly ran into trouble because I had no means of transport. Um, I was 15 years old and, um, you know, ultimately completely um, missed the mark, uh, but had a lot of fun. I mean, and then, you know, getting into more mature and sophisticated businesses. When I was in my early 20s, we were building quite a serious business, a software as a service um, business servicing the mining and engineering space. And um, we built some incredible products for some incredible clients like BHP Billiton, um, Rio Tinto, you know, some of the biggest players in the world in this space. And ultimately, I was defrauded by business partners. And so, you know, we failed for a completely different reason. We, we ran out of money and... Um, you know, I had financial backers in the company that were effectively playing a shell game with the cash. And so, um, you know, at the age of 22, I think it was, uh, I nearly went bankrupt. And oh so God. it was a very early lesson in, in who to trust and, and keeping an eye on the cash and also keeping an eye on the debts, you know. And so it, it was a bit of a tragic tale. We had to shut down that business and let go of all of the, the staff and move out of the offices. And, I mean, it was really... It, it was a really somber time. It was a really stressful time. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, it serendipitously led on to my next opportunity, which ended up being a great success. But at the time, I couldn't see beyond it and thought that, uh, thought that the world was ending, basically. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I still say to this day that negotiating my way out of that mess is the best deal I've ever done because it allowed me to, to, um, to pick up and carry on and have another go. And you know, I'm really glad that I did. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Um, that must have been quite... A pivotal a pivotal season in your entrepreneurial development as a leader as well as emotionally and personally how how was it in terms of you told us kind of like the facts of you know going through this turmoil going through betrayal essentially by your partners mm. um emotionally what was that like navigating that season and then how did you sell through and come out the other side and 
and say, you know what, I'm continuing to be an entrepreneur. I'm not going to go get a nine to five. Yeah. <laughs> Look, it's a great question. And, and it's a, it's a lot of years ago now. And so, um, you know, it's a bit easier to talk about, but at the time it was incredibly heartbreaking. And if I'm honest, it probably took me the best part of a decade to really get over. I mean, I, I moved on before then, but, you know, mm-hmm. carrying the baggage of that loss and that betrayal and, and that pain was really with me for a long time. And, uh, I probably could have done a better job of of dealing with it had I known better. But you know, I was I was a very young adult and I was learning uh, some of the difficult lessons of street smarts, as I like to call it. And mm-hmm. um, you know, it was it was heartbreaking because I was leading the company and I had um, some financial partners that were effectively you know funding it um, from the profits of an existing business they had. Um, and the existing business ran into trouble and they sort of tried to pretend that the money was still there and, and it wasn't. But I was the person on the ground leading the team, um, working full time, uh, you know, setting the vision and talking to clients and building the products and to then fail for no reason other than cash and other than, you know, a, an issue of integrity. Um, mm. And not because we hadn't built something that was incredibly high quality and not because we didn't have a fantastic team, but to fail for other reasons was really, really felt like the, the rug had been pulled out from under us and, um, and it felt incredibly unfair. So that was, that was difficult to get over. Um, mm. But, you know, as I said before, it did present another opportunity, which ultimately led to some success and you know at the time because we were um i I was involved in this business as sweat equity i i I wasn't um i didn't put any cash in but i also wasn't taking any cash out getting paid for my time um Mm -hmm. so when it collapsed i i owned 33 percent of the company and i owned 33 percent of the debt and (laughs) and that's what nearly took me under but in order to pay my way at the time as an early 20 something i was consulting one day a week and um, the company that I was consulting for was a, a technology company called Vroom Vroom Vroom. And um, you know, the, the name may sound familiar to you because I own it today. But at the time, mm-hmm. I, was, um, I was consulting a day a week, uh, ultimately for a year. And throughout that year, I'd been approached three times to join the team full time because they liked what I was doing for them. And I turned them down because I said, hey, I'm, I'm busy over here. I'm building this amazing software as a service business in the mining space. And it's going to be, you know, it's going to be a unicorn. It's going to be amazing. And, um, and when it all blew up um, and we lost to that company, I thought the world was over and I thought I was in debt and I thought I was going bankrupt and all these terrible things. Um, and, and out of the blue, truly serendipitously i got a phone call from uh the major shareholder of vroom who lived in the uk and Mm. it it was a phone call presenting me with the fourth and ultimately final offer to join the business full-time and you know it was an offer of of some equity and come on and, and basically build the business like it was my own because they had heard my message that i didn't want to join them as an employee it's not how i was wired it's not what i was motivated by i was ultimately an entrepreneur and so they approached me as an entrepreneur and said, look, we need you. We like what you're doing. Come and do some more of it and um, and take a stake in the business and, and build it like it's your own. And this was literally three days after my world had collapsed and they didn't know wow. that. <laughs> you know, it wow. was just truly out of the blue. And so I sort of played it coy and said, oh, gee, you know, I think you finally <laughs> twisted my arm <laughs> on this fourth <laughs> attempt. And, and so I... You know, I, I said yes and turned up there on Monday and went full time and 
that was a little over 10 years ago. Um, and today I own that company uh, with that one other partner. I ultimately uh, took on the CEO role and, and um, scaled that business globally, bought out a couple of the other uh, shareholders and, um, and we've owned it for the past decade and it's become an incredibly successful company. And uh, Vroom Vroom Vroom, for those listening who aren't familiar, is the, the largest car rental aggregator website in the mm. Southern Hemisphere. So where we are here in Australia and New Zealand, we rent a lot of cars for the likes of Hertz and Avis and Budget and, and the major car rental brands. And, and we're a comparison site for those. And, um, you know, it's been a, a wild ride, but um, that's one of the wins in my entrepreneurial journey. Oh, that's incredible. I, I love how what started as, you know, a season of apparent failure or failure in inverted commas then led to this massive wonderful opportunity and this business is doing really well today and like you said you skilled it globally it's it's quite incredible um quite often we can see just a moment of failure in inverted commas as you know equating to us being a failure not realizing that on the other side just you know it might just require once a pivot here meeting a right person, a strategy tweak, a new opportunity that would lead us to something that be really, truly sustainable and scalable. So this is really, really inspirational. Thank you for, for sharing that back journey. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's a, it's a great example of you never know what's around the corner, right? It's uh, You fall on hard times, but if you're persistent and put in the hard work and keep showing up, there's always opportunity around the corner. So, um, you know, this was a a nice story of that playing out and coming true and it uh, wasn't without a lot of effort, but, um, you know, we, we have a nice uh, happy ending to, to share. Yes. That's, that's incredible. And you do multiple things. <laughs> how, how do you, how do you juggle all the balls? Look, that's a good question. At times I, um, at times I, I drop the ball, um, but other times I juggle it. I think it's, part and parcel of just how I'm wired. Um, as an entrepreneur, I naturally am a problem solver. Um, I see the world mm-hmm. as opportunity. And mm-hmm. when other people see uh, challenges or, or see something to complain about, I'm always sort of inverting that and looking for the opportunity to solve the problem and add some value and potentially create a business. Um, and so it's, you know, it's an a, eyes wide open approach. And uh, through my travels around the world and talking to customers and clients and colleagues, there's opportunities everywhere. And I think the bigger challenge is actually filtering that down to what's worth pursuing and, um, you know, where can we add the highest amount of value? Because I think my challenge is probably more that there's, there's too much opportunity, too much distraction, and it's a matter mm-hmm. of focusing and, and choosing the highest highest value. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, look, we have the, the car rental aggregator and we have an online insurance company and, I have a, an investment holding entity um, for the family that we, we invest in various interesting things and I contribute in you know, not-for-profit boards and, and communities. Um, and I, I love to learn. You know, I, I love studying other successful uh, businesses, other successful business people and, and business families, generational business families, I think are fascinating. And so um, I think part of being an entrepreneur and, and – uh, looking to always build and add value is being curious, asking lots mm-hmm. of questions and, and seeing what's out there because, you know, we've just talked about going from a failure to ultimately a success, but, you know, it's there's plenty of challenges around the corner and you've got to be prepared. So, 
you know, at the time of writing, we're 18 months into the biggest disruption to the travel industry in history. And um, two of my biggest holdings are in the travel industry. And so had we been flat-footed and, um, and just siloed in those without looking to innovate and invest in other things, then, you know, we've, we might have been in trouble. But fortunately, we've managed to weather this storm so far, um, and I'm sure we'll come out the other side even more prosperous. But, um, you know, from my perspective, I love a portfolio approach. I love to be involved in lots of different things at the same time. Mm, mm, absolutely fascinating um we share a common interest in generational business families can you share a little bit more about how you started you know getting into this space and how like you mentioned you're you're very curious and you love learning can you share more about your your podcast and and all absolutely um you know i i shared the story early that but I was an entrepreneur since very, very young. And, and um, ultimately, we made our first serious success in our 20s. When I say our, I'm referring to my wife and I. You know, we've often worked together. We describe ourselves as a team. We're both interested in business and we uh, are quite complementary. You know, I'm the, I'm the guy on the podcasts and, and talking to people and out there selling the vision. And, and uh, my wife is, is the systems and processes brain and, um, and mm-hmm. the, the superhero behind the scenes, I like to say. So, you know, we work together to build businesses, but working together, we ultimately built our wealth for the mm-hmm. first time in our 20s. And, you know, we grew up um, comfortably middle class, but certainly didn't grow up wealthy. And uh, we were transported to this new world of wealth and yeah. figuring out how that world worked, um, how we were to behave, what the culture was, was a challenge. And it was interesting and, and exciting, but also a challenge. Um, and what really became apparent was when we started having children ourselves, when we started our family, we realized that our kids were growing up with opportunity and abundance in ways that we never had. And, mm. you know, I'm, I'm referring to financial wealth, but also just, you know, um, such a global approach because we were, were building businesses around the world. We were you know, jetting around and, and opening doors and, and doing all sorts of interesting things. And we never had those sorts of opportunities growing up. And so, we turned to those that had preceded us, that had done this before. We looked and, and researched and connected with lots of generational business families who um, had ultimately um, had wealth, passed it down, successfully kept it together, raised their next generation and ultimately their third and their fourth generation and still had a harmonious family unit. And from all of our research, we learned that that those cases that we came across were absolutely the exception to the norm. Uh, most mm. families didn't keep their wealth together. Most lost it um, by the third generation is the common ad- adage. And we didn't want to become a family that ultimately was spoiled by financial wealth. And so we channeled our strong family values and our interest in raising really well-rounded, um, striving kids amid wealth. Uh, and tried to learn from people that had been there and done that. So we we read all the books and um, and ultimately reached out to people we knew and, and asked lots of questions. And um, that ignited a passion in us in exploring generational wealth. Incredible, incredible. And what's been that journey been like? What have what have you learned um, through the podcast? What have been the key themes across these families that you've been interviewing? Yeah, look, it's a fantastic question. And, and so, 
I, I ultimately started the podcast as a um, as a COVID project. I was locked down in Singapore where we were living at the time, um, couldn't get around as usual, and decided that I was going to ultimately interview ten families um, that I was having conversations with privately, but ultimately I wanted to share them publicly and see if there was interest from others. And uh, by about the fifth episode, there was so much interest that we we uh, knew that we had to continue. And now I've interviewed you know well over fifty families around the world. Uh, about their story and we've learned so much um, comparing cultures comparing how families mm-hmm. operate generationally in different parts of the world is fascinating but there's quite a lot of common linkages as well and you know one of the things that I found most interesting that you don't hear as often is that about 80 percent of all the wealthy people in the world uh, are not raised with wealth it's obtained mm-hmm. during their lifetime. And, of Mm. of course, that resonated with me because I fell into the 80%. I created my wealth as an entrepreneur. And so, you know, I read countless stories about other entrepreneurs or investment managers or real estate professionals or uh, even in some cases inheritors or lottery winners, people that had come into this huge abundance without Mm. the value system or the culture of wealth uh, that they grew up with. And so I sort of pulled on that string and, and, and researched it further. And I was also really interested to understand how families ultimately pass to the second and the third generation and retain the wealth, but also retain the family harmony and relationships. And so I set out to, um, to interview these families and probably the biggest learning amongst all of it was that those that were keeping it together weren't doing it out of luck, right? They, mm-hmm. were, they were the exception to the rule because they were intentional about it. And that's the number, that's, that's the key word, intentional. They were documenting their family constitution or their family charter, or they were talking with meaningful language about the vision for the family. And oftentimes this was something bigger than the founder, bigger mm-hmm. than one individual or one uh, founding couple. It was about something that's bigger than us. This family heritage, this family lineage has a story, it has a meaning, there's a purpose, there's a why. And the families would ultimately celebrate that and pass that knowledge down through the generations. They would form formal governance structures, whether it was based around a constitution or a charter or a value statement. Um, and they would have regular meetings. You know, the, the, the most sophisticated families were run like small countries <laughs> or, or more mm-hmm. appropriately like corporations. Mm. You know, there was a governance structure in place that, uh, that force people to think about how are we actually stewarding this wealth and what are the forms of wealth? You know, they were exploring not just their financial wealth, but also their human and intellectual and social capital and their spiritual capital. And mm. the families that were incredibly intentional about this were the ones that thrived and survived. And everybody has family harmony issues and relationship issues and um challenges with people marrying into the family and you know that's not uncommon but the thing that keeps families glued together is that greater purpose something bigger than us and Mm. um and and the stories passing on the stories to the next gen is really powerful oh this is incredible i love what you said about the importance of the intentionality and having a vision that's bigger than the founder that's really critical and then you mentioned and alluded to the fact that these families were not just focused on their financial capital, um, but they really took time to reflect on different types of capital that they had available. 
Um, and I think this is a really important point that a lot of folks are not aware of that there's, there are different types of capital and perhaps financial is just a strand. Can you speak more to that? Yes, of course. And look, the number one reason that families implode and, and don't make it to the next generation um, is, is usually never because of uh, poor investment decisions around managing the wealth or choosing the wrong trust structure or um, entity structure. Almost always the wealth is lost due to a breakdown in relationships, right? So the families that aren't investing mm-hmm. in the human capital side of their family wealth are the ones that are most likely to lose it. Because if you focus solely on the financial wealth, that's the thing that divides families when it comes to um, fights over inheritance or contesting wills or who was the favourite child or what do you do with stepchildren or second marriages and all those sorts of things. Those thorny issues are impossible to deal with when there's no family harmony. If mm. there is governance structure and a, uh, a well-governed family that has looked after all forms of its capital, then the financial capital is most likely to stay intact and pass to the next generation as well. Mm. So, you know, examples of, of investing in the human capital, one of the first things that families often do is actually separate some of the financial wealth to create um, education funds or opportunity funds for the next generation. And it's wealth that the current generation or founding generation can't touch. And it's not invested for the purposes of necessarily compounding the wealth, but it's set aside specifically for investing in the next generation, Mm -hmm. upskilling them, uh, tooling them, providing them with education or opportunities. And often with a specific purpose of helping to spark the next entrepreneurial engine of the family, right? Mm -hmm. Because the most successful families recognise that the founder's wealth will not be enough to sustain the family as you get to the fourth and fifth generation. Ultimately, the family is going to have to contribute to and grow the wealth and invest in new forms of entrepreneurship or business or investment. And so one of the best ways to do that is to invest into the human and intellectual capital of the family. Protecting the human capital can be something as as simple and crude as having the right insurances and and safety mechanisms Uh, mechanisms in place and the intellectual capital can be all about investing in the next generation so there's plenty of examples of uh, social and philanthropic and charitable capital which i I don't think we need to labor but um, the families that are really really intentional about their purpose and who they're here to serve and how they're growing the next gen are the ones that tend to stay together and the reason why is because when you're focused on the whole picture something bigger than us or bigger than me, Mm. you're naturally acting as a steward rather than an inheritor. And the best way I can put this is saying, you know, if if the founding family has four children, uh, if if those children all inherit 25% each of the estate and then they each have two children and their children inherit 50% each of the the 25%, you can see how the, the family wealth fragments very quickly. It's like a pyramid or a tree diagram. It just gets divided and divided and divided. And you go from very wealthy to somewhat wealthy to kind of wealthy to not wealthy at all as you pass down the generations because the wealth is spread so thin. The alternative to that method is rather than saying this wealth is mine, I'm going to divide it up like a pie and and pass it to the children. Instead, we're going to put that into a family office or a family bank Mm. and we're going to steward this wealth as its own entity, as its own container. 
from generation to the next generation. And we're not going to divide it. We're going to keep it together. And we're going to elect representatives from the family to sit on the family board and to govern and steward the wealth. And obviously, they're overseeing the financial wealth, but they're also overseeing the, the spirit and vision of the founders. They're telling the founding story and they're passing that down to the next generation while also preparing their successor to ultimately replace them on the family board one day, keep the story alive, keep the spirit of the family alive and invest in the next generation to start the next economic engine for the family. I I so love this because it's really an evolution from the focus on an individual to the collective and truly including the next generation in this journey. And as you said earlier, creating a, a, a vision that's bigger, a purpose that's bigger than the founder. And I love the fact that you're really highlighting not just from a tactical perspective, you know, the, the business management, the governance of the business, but even talking through the narrative, talking through the wider purpose, the spiritual element of it, which, you know, it, 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 it doesn't necessarily meet the eye when you, you look at a business on the surface level, but these are really the deeper tentacles in the family business that's keeping it together from a generational perspective. You mentioned that your your wife and yourself are, you know, you're, you built your wealth in your 20s and you're part of that 80% of entrepreneurs that are um, self-made. Um, sorry, rather 80% of wealth owners that are self-made. And your kids are growing up in abundance and in opportunities and in a way that you and your wife never had to. How are you navigating that? <laughs> Day by day is is the short answer, Nick. Um, look, it, it's wonderful, and we've got two beautiful children. And um, you know, I'd say like most parents, we're figuring it out as we go along. But we are through this research and through this this passion for the area, trying to be as intentional as possible about um, educating our children in a way that provides them with opportunity but doesn't spoil them. And, of course, mm-hmm. it's easier said than done because, mm-hmm. you know, our lifestyle that we live today is very different to the one that we enjoyed when we grew up. And naturally, you know, if you look at through that comparative lens, um, it looks as if our children are spoiled from the outside in compared to what I had. But, of course, that's just who we are now as we navigate life. Mm-hmm. So the bigger focus comes through on how do we instill and imbue the right values in our kids? How do we teach them um, the value of a dollar, but also Mm -hmm. the the value of contribution, the value of respect and the value of low ego? And how do we teach them to think about the impact that they can make in the world? Mm -hmm. And, you know, our children are still quite young. And so some of the concepts I'm talking about, we haven't even been able to, to begin yet. But the first things that we're doing for our kids is really trying to capture the spirit of our founding journey, mm-hmm. partly the story that I'm telling you now, and documenting that in a way so that we can capture and pass on those stories to the next generation when they're age appropriate, right? Mm-hmm. There'll, be a t- there'll be a time in their teens and their early adulthood when they come and shadow us and ultimately join the family board. They'll join family meetings. They'll probably contribute from about the age of 10 or so when there's an interest in joining family meetings. 
And, you know, some families start to teach values around uh, budgeting and opportunity cost and trade-offs by simply getting the children to plan the annual vacation, right? Mm. They'll, they'll say, mm. where would you like to go? You can choose, um, but there's a budget. And, uh, and when they choose the Bahamas and, uh, and they want to take all their friends or they want to do certain things, they quickly realize that actually we need to make sensible decisions because that costs too much money based on the budget provided or whatever the example might be. But getting kids involved in, in the family business or in the, the business of family is really about including them in making those decisions. And as I alluded to um, capturing the stories, there's actually research out of Emory University in recent years that talks about kids who have a really clear understanding of where they come from, of who their uh, ancestors and predecessors were, who their great, uh, grandparents and great-grandparents were, and what they went through, what their mm. trials and tribulations were, how they survived world wars or immigrated to new countries and started with nothing. Those sorts of stories being understood by children actually uh, is proven to uh, generate more resilient kids uh, mm. who are less likely to suffer mental health issues and actually mm. grow up um, as, as strong individuals with a really important sense of who they are as part of something that's bigger than them, right? They connect mm. to the story that actually we are part of something special. It's not just uh, mine to inherit, but ultimately my job to keep this story alive and contribute to it, to be a steward of this legacy. Mm. And one of the best ways you can do that is capture and, and share your storytelling. So, mm. you know, a simple tactic is we write a letter to our kids every year. You know, mm. Usually around Christmas time, we reflect on the year and we write a letter each to our children. And so, you know, you can imagine that as they come of age at the age of 18 or 21 or 30 or whenever you choose is appropriate, they get a box of these letters or maybe it's an inbox of emails that mm. mm. uh, they can reflect on who we were as adults at the time we wrote it, uh, who they were as children at the time they received it, um, and they can watch how we grew and evolved and saw the world um, ultimately as we were raising them and sharing some of the journey that we were on um, as they were growing up. And that gives them a really good sense of who they are in the world, um, where they fit in the, into the bigger picture, and doesn't necessarily dictate that they have to follow in our footsteps but really just have an appreciation of how all this came to be and, um, and why they should value it rather than just uh, ask what's in it for me. Powerful, powerful. Documenting and passing on the stories um, is so critical um, and it does take intentionality because it's so easy just to live and focus on managing the business and raising a family, but being intentional about passing on that heritage, passing on that legacy. Um, it does take making decisions like this, like writing a letter to your kids. I absolutely love that every year. I might, I might borrow that. <laughs> oh, we might do. borrow that please in our do. household. That's really, really powerful. <laughs> I'd love well, to know. Look at, mm, sorry, it, I was carry just going to add, it's, it, it's all part of this governance structure, right? It, it seems like it is difficult and absolutely it is if you have to have the willpower to remember or the willpower to um to instigate it on every occasion but ultimately 
you know, we build this into our business of family. We have a, uh, an annual governance structure and, and a family charter, um, which we review every year. And we have family meetings that we hold at least quarterly. And at the moment, those family meetings are my wife and I, right, because our children are too young. But ultimately, they'll join us one day and they'll have the documented history of, of what we discussed at those, at those meetings. Um, even before they were there, we, we sort of keep a you know, very, very sort of casual minutes of the meeting, but there's a record. And mm. so it's, it's quite easy to um, include in the quarterly agenda or in the annual agenda a prompt to write the annual letter or write the reflection or um, take the family photo. You know, we have a, we, we mm. bought a, um, a piece of land um, in, a, in a beautiful part of the world that's very special to us. And um, it's our family retreat or what we hope to be our generational family retreat, something we'd love to stay in the family and, and have uh, grandkids and great-grandkids make memories there. And, you know, part of that special part of place in the world is on this property there's a, an enormous rock. There's this great big boulder. And ever since the kids were very, very young, we've stood on top of this boulder and taken a photo of the family. And mm. so every year we have a prompt as part of our annual governance process to take a family photo on the boulder. And, it, you know, obviously you see the kids in the same place every year, but they're getting, you know, a head taller or sometimes <laughs> a couple of head taller. Um, and it's just this uh, visual storytelling of watching the family grow up and evolve together. Um, and those sorts of um, photos and memories accompany, you know, an annual letter or maybe it's a journal entry or something else. But I think, each family can do it their own way, but if you just create a rhythm and a structure that prompts you to do it, then all of a sudden it's it's a lot less work and it's a lot less scary. It just becomes automatic. That's powerful, really powerful. Um, you've spoken a bit about your wife um, all through the podcast, and um, I'd love to know more about what's your wife and your vision for your next generation. Yeah, look, it's a wonderful question. And, you know, I speak about my wife because I'm incredibly proud of her. And um, mm. she's the she's the strong woman behind me. Um, I think it's important to, to call that out. Um, but look, as a team, we're, we're really focused on our kids and nurturing them in a way that um, fosters their creativity and their passions. We're, um, we're big believers that uh, they can chart their own path. And mm. certainly some of the families and and um, those of different cultures that I've interviewed from around the world on my um, Business of Family podcast, um, some don't have that privilege, right? There's a lot of uh, mm. families from Asian natures, uh, nations, for instance, that basically is a birthright. If you're the oldest son, you're inheriting this business and, and you'll do what's expected of you. And, you know, that's not us. Um, mm. You know, for us, it's about uh, creating opportunities. Um, we're big believers in education. It, it helps shape our journey. And so we'd like to provide incredible world-class education opportunities to our children uh, if they'd like to take that up. And that may be uh, a focus on academics or it may be a focus on music or it may be a focus on, on another passion area. But I think from our perspective, we're just passionate about them pursuing growth and, and learning and, and learning to strive and ultimately learning to contribute something back to the world. So um I would love for them to participate in the family meetings and ultimately enjoy that. You know, we're working really hard to lay a foundation as the founding generation to try and avoid some of the future family harmony issues that a lot of other families suffer. Mm -hmm. And um, 
I don't for a moment think that I'm not naive enough to think that uh, we will avoid those, but it's more about preparation. And this has come from the research and, and from the interviews as well, that the families that are most prepared and that ultimately hold on to their wealth for the most generations are the ones that have put um, policies and plans in place ahead of need. And what I mean by that is, you know, the family at their family meetings over the years have developed policies um, in advance of need around things like what happens when someone gets married. Is a spouse allowed to be involved in the family business or is a spouse allowed to work in the family business? Are they allowed to join the family board? Um, do children automatically inherit? Uh, what about stepchildren? What if you remarry? What if you divorce? Um, how does the family deal with uh, same-sex marriages or, mm -hmm. or otherwise? You know, there's all these quite contentious issues that um, most families choose not to talk about or think about because they'd prefer that it didn't happen. But um, they're actually quite common things in life. And if, mm. if you do talk about them and you do prepare for them and you do document even something as simple as a, a paragraph or two on how the family will deal with a situation of one of the family board members going through a divorce, then mm. ultimately the policy is in place before there was a need and the policy is not a reflection of that person because it was written before the event. Mm -hmm. And... Those sorts of things, while difficult, are really powerful in keeping families together because it's not so much about the individual. It's not tearing apart because of breakdown relationships. It's there as a governance structure to bolster the greater good, the greater whole, rather than deal with an individual that's going through a, a troubling time. Incredible. Um, this has been phenomenal, Mike. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, in your introduction, you mentioned that you had a combination of street smart and book smart, and you do have, that is very true. You've, you've, you've done a lot of the research. You're very curious about this world of generational businesses, um, the business of family. If folks would like to learn more about your work, how best can they um, get to know? Thank you, Nikkei. It's been an absolute pleasure sharing a, a brief part of my journey. And you know, I hope there's been some interesting and, and valuable bits there. If anybody would like to, to learn more about me or connect with me, probably the best way to find me is through my podcast. It's uh, uh, businessoffamily.net. And that's where I've interviewed many generational families and learned a lot about what I've talked about today. Uh, and I also have a personal website, which is mikeboyd.com.au. So I'd love to hear from any members of the audience. And if I can be of value, then it'd be my pleasure. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. That was powerful powerful when Mike was like you never know what's around the corner and it's so important as an entrepreneur to just be persistent to be consistent and to keep showing up I was like yes oh my goodness I'm preaching to my soul and then um the whole conversation about multi-generational families and how this you know minority that are able to navigate and preserve wealth and families over generations um, how they all are very super intentional in doing so. And it's really inspiring to me how Mike has, you know, in being part of this 80% of wealthy families that are self-made, this first generation navigating, upscaling, a change in economic status and trying to raise a family at the same time and navigating global 
becoming increasingly global as a family and as a business, how he's just taken the time to stay humble. Because it's so easy to not <laughs> not stay humble and um, not stay curious and not stay a learner. Um, I find that really fascinating. And, you know, the, the kind of practical lessons on how do you, how do you, how do you practice governance in, you know, as a business family beyond councils, committees and charters. But what does that actually look like on a day to day, on a quarterly basis, on a, on an annual basis? Um, I really love that. The tips that he gave on writing letters to his kids on their birthdays is something that I'm stealing. And (laughs) I loved the threads that he found across these families of the importance of vision, the importance of having something bigger than one, the founder, and two, than us as individuals. Um, Having this anchoring purpose, having our stories, um, and the importance of polycapital, i.e. not just the financial capital of the family, but the human capital, the 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 spiritual capital right the knowledge capital the political capital is just just super phenomenal so that's that was a really dense episode and um i was so 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 blessed by it um both by his story by his knowledge it was just a phenomenal one so thank you thank you so much for tuning in take good care and god bless you